0: Thank you for supporting the Ministry of Victory Outreach International. We pray this message challenges, ignites faith, and that God would fan the flame that will produce a harvest of souls throughout the world. You, And we'll continue to give you all the praise and give you all the glory, for we ask it all in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. You may be seated. This morning, if I would title this message, and usually we like to give a title to to a message, and if I would give this message a title, I think that the title that I would give this message that I'm going to be ministering this morning would be, The Danger, Listen to Me Now, The Danger of, of Sleeping in Church. and I'm going to tell you why it's dangerous to sleep in church. Last week we covered a lot of ground in the book of Acts. In fact it was last week that we spoke about the Antioch church and we brought out the the why the Antioch church was a great church and why it was such a powerful church and then we also even went back to the uh, the very beginning of the book of Acts of how the Holy Spirit came upon disciples, and they stayed in Jerusalem, and they evangelized all of Jerusalem. Remember that they had evangelized all of Jerusalem, and they got comfortable in Jerusalem, and they didn't want to go any further, and they stayed there until God began to move. And God began to move to mo- mobilize them. He had to move through circumstances, and the only way He could mobilize that church and get to, get them to do what he wanted them to do was bring in persecution to the church. And you remember that Stephen uh, got killed. He, he, was, he was stoned. He became the first martyr. And after the death of Stephen, everybody took off for the four corners of the, of the globe. They all took off in different directions. And as they took off, they also took off and they were witnessing everywhere they went. And then the Samaritans got saved, and then after the Samaritans got saved, then even finally, the the Greeks or the Gentiles received the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we went all the way up to Antioch, where there was a a group of uh, those that were fleeing for their lives, and those that were scattered because of the persecution came all the way to Antioch, and these Jews began to preach to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles got saved... And that became the very first Gentile church. Remember we spoke about that last week? And in that church, that's where we find that it was a very strategic church where they send out the Apostle Paul and Barnabas to do the work of a missionary to the Gentiles. And it was there that they were praying and the Spirit said, separate them, separate Barnabas and Paul for the work that I have called them. And from that church, that church became a, a model of, uh, for us to follow today, a, a church that was in tune with God, a church that was uh, following the divine purposes of God, and a church that was ascending church and not only reaching out to their community, but reaching out throughout the entire world. And that's the vision that God has given to Victory Outreach. Now, the portion that I'm gonna be, we're going to be looking at this morning, it's... Uh, we find the Apostle Paul, he's in, in his, finishing his third missionary journey. Now you remember the first missionary journey was when in the, in the book, book of Acts where the church of Antioch, they, the Spirit said, separate Paul and Barnabas, and they launched them out. That was their very first missionary journey. It was Paul and Barnabas. And then later on, that was the first one. And then later on we find a second missionary journey that Paul took which was with uh, Paul and Silas, and they went out, and they were doing the work of God, and they went out to different places and preaching the Word of God, and God gave them many results. But here in this portion of Scripture that I'm reading, years have passed by, and a lot of transpired since that moment when God launched out Paul and Barnabas from the Antioch church, and he's just about to conclude his third missionary journey. And we find him here where he's just about to leave the city of Ephesus. And I want you to read with me in chapter 20, verse 1. Would you do that? It says in chapter 20, verse 1, it says, And after the uproar was ceased, Paul called unto him the disciples and embraced them and departed for to go into Macedonia. Now, look at me for a moment. You notice what it says over here? It says in verse 1, And after the uproar were ceased. Now, you, you read this, and if you just read it, and, and, and you don't look at the previous chapter, you really don't know what the Luke is talking about. Now, Luke is the author of the book of Acts. And you don't really know what Luke is ta- talking about when he says the uproar has stopped. But we need to go back into chapter 19 and see what he was talking about about the uproar that actually took place. I want you to know this this morning, that anytime you do the work of God, there's going to be blessings and at the same time there's going to be trials. Anytime you set your mind to do the will of God and you say, I want to do the will of God and I'm going to dedicate myself to to be that Christian that God wants me to be, God's going to bless you. But at the same time, there is, there's going to be trials, there's going to be persecution that you're going to go through. Not only does this happen individually, but it also happens to the church as a whole. And this is why we see the Apostle Paul, the different trials that he went through. And in chapter 19, we have a good example of what I, I just told you, what, I, what, what, what we're talking about this morning. Now chapter 19, and I want you to keep your Bibles open because we're going to be using the word. In chapter 19, in the very beginning, we have, actually we have three sections here that we can look at in chapter 19. First of all, in the beginning of chapter 19, we have uh, that uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, he goes, uh, he, he was at Corinth, but Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus, and then he found certain disciples. Now, I want you to notice this, that he found these disciples, they were disciples of John the Baptist, but they had not yet been baptized in the Holy Ghost. So it says over here, and he said unto them, have you received the Holy Ghost as you believe? They said, we haven't even heard of such a, a Holy Ghost. And then what happened here, he laid hands upon them and they received the power of the Holy Spirit within their lives. So these 12 disciples, that hadn't, they hadn't even heard of the baptism of the Holy Ghost when they came and they were confronted by Paul. After Paul prayed for them, they received the power of the Holy Ghost. And then after that, we find that in, uh, in verse 8, it says that, that Paul in Ephesus, he, w- he went into the synagogue and he preached boldly for the space of three months. Now, I want you to notice the pattern of Paul the Apostle. He was a tremendous missionary. He's the example of what a missionary should be. He would go into a town, and the first thing he did, he always followed that, that procedure. He always follows this pattern, uh, the pattern that the gospel was first to the Jew and then to everybody. So he would go into a town, and the first place that he would go would be the synagogue. And here we find him following that pattern. He goes into Ephesus, and he goes into the synagogue. And he begins to preach in the synagogue for three months. And then after three months, it happens all the time. After Paul was preaching Jesus Christ to them, they would eventually kick him out of the synagogue. And after he got kicked out of the synagogue, then Paul would go and find another place where he could preach and take all those converts that were converted to Christianity from the synagogue and have them follow him. So Paul here was kicked out of the synagogues after three months of disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. And then... It says that he went ahead and he found a place, a meeting hall, where he could have his meetings that was called the School of One Tyrannius. There was a, a meeting hall that was called the School of Tyrrhenius, and he was able to find that place, and he must have uh, either they gave it to him free, or he rented that place, but he began to have his meetings there. And the Bible tells us that for two years, he began to preach there in that meeting hall for two years. And it says in verse 10, and this continued by the space of two years. Now notice the effect that Paul had in ministering in Ephesus. So that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So powerful was the ministry of the Apostle Paul that as he was ministering in that, uh, that uh, hall, lecture hall, he everybody in all of Asia heard the Word of God. And then it says in, in, in verse 11, God brought special miracles by the hands of Paul so that from his body, you talk about a miracle ministry, from his body were, were brought unto, unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and disease departed from them, and evil spirits went out of them. I mean, Paul was ministering in signs and wonders, In the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me just mention that there was a group of guys that they noticed what he was doing. They're called the the seven sons of Saba. That they noticed that Paul was casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And how many know there's always copycats? How many know that people try to manufacture the Holy Spirit? And how many know that you cannot manufacture the Holy Spirit? it has to be genuine. And what happened, this uh, seven brothers, they tried to do the same thing Paul did, and they got a hold of a demon-possessed man, and then they started going ahead, and, and he, they started praying to, and, and to cast out the spirit out of this person, and they said, we, we command you in, 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 the Je- in the name of the Jesus that Paul preaches. See, they didn't know who, he, who Jesus was, so it says, we command you, just the, they, watched the, they thought it was a formula. So we command you in the name of, of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. And you know what the demon-possessed man said? Jesus, I know. Paul, I know. But who in the world are you? And what they did is that one demon-possessed person jumped on those seven uh, uh, brothers and I mean, they ripped off their clothes and they began to flee for their lives. So it actually, the formula that they had did not work. And, and then it was so powerful, the, the ministry of the Apostle Paul, that it tells us that in, uh, in verse 18, and many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds, and many of them also which used curious arts brought their books together and burned them before all men, and they counted the price of them, and they found 50,000 pieces of silver, so mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. And then it says over here in verse 23, and the same time, now notice the blessings of the word, God moving in a powerful way. You see that? I mean, you can't, we can't think of a, more, of a more powerful way than the way God was moving here in this portion of Scripture that I have just read. They were getting healed. The demon-possessed people were getting delivered. I mean, Paul was at his very best. But all of a sudden, what happens? Opposition. You, 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 that's right. Opposition and persecution came in verse 23. And at the same time, there arose. Notice what it says. No small stir about the way. Now, I want you to notice, and listen to me, whenever you hear that, the way, or those that are in the way, or those from, from the way, or those are about the way, though, what it's really referring to is Christians. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. They were living another life now, so they says, those that are in the way, and they were referring to Christians. So it says, in, at the same time, there was no small stir about the way, about the Christians. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, or in other portions of other other translations of Bible, it's called Artemis. That was the god of the Ephesians. Brought no small gain unto the craftsman, whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation and said, Sir. You know that by this craft we have wealth. Moreover, you see that in here, that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away much people, saying that there be no gods which are made with hands. So that not only this our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis or Diana should be despised, and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worshipeth. And they that heard these sayings, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana uh, of the Ephesians. And the whole city was filled with confusion. And having caught Gaius and uh, 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 Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, Paul's companion in travel, they rushed in with one accord into the theater. And when Paul would have entered in unto the people, the disciples disciples suffered him not to. Now, here's what, in a nutshell, what happened here there was a riot that actually broke out. And the reason why the riot broke out was because all these people were getting converted. You know, they used to all have like the little, their little god, they would probably put him on their chariots. You know, just like sometimes we put things, you know, saints on our cars and all these different things. Well, in those days, that was a big business. As far as the goddess Diana and the And these people that were making it, that was their craft, all these people were getting converted and they were burning it all and none of these people that were getting converted were buying all of their little gods. And because of that, these people began to come into an uproar and they arose up, all of them, and they started stirring up the crowd. And there was a big group and it says that they went into this place and there was uh, thousands of them that gathered together. And Paul, they got two of the disciples. And Paul wanted to go in. But the other disciples told him not to go in because they feared for his life. And when they went into this big place, everybody was screaming and yelling. There was confusion. There was anger. And for, it tells us that for two hours, they were screaming. They were screaming and yelling. And there was confusion in that entire place. Until finally... There was a a man, a a, a deputy or someone that was from the government that came and then he stopped the riot. And finally, they let the disciples go And he told them, if you do this, we're going to get in trouble with Rome. And he pacified the whole situation and everything stopped and nobody got hurt. But there was a riot that broke out. And it was, uh, it was uh, a very uh, difficult situation for the Apostle Paul. So the disciples told the Apostle Paul, Paul, you better move on. And in the portion of Scripture that I am reading in, verse, in chapter 20, we find Paul moving on and leaving Ephesus. Now, look at me for a moment. You know, it's amazing. As I read this, as I study the portion of Scripture, I get excited because I see the hand of God moving, and sometimes when God is moving at his very best, there's always, you're always going to stir up opposition. And many times, the devil uses man. The problems are sometimes with man is the devil he comes and, and, and mobilizes other people to try to discourage you, uh, persecution, or they start slandering your name. or He does whatever he could to discourage you and intimidate you from, for, from fulfilling what God has called you to do. But how many know that it didn't work with Paul? In fact, Paul was ready to even give his life. He was ready to walk into that mob and they stopped him. They said, the disciples says, don't go into that place. And they prevented him from going into that place. And then they told him, Paul, you better get out of town because you're drawing a lot of heat to the Christians here and uh, you're a topic uh, that is very controversial and you better keep on moving on. So then in v- chapter 20, verse one, That's where we see Paul moving on. And it says, after the uproar was ceased. What uproar? The riot that took place. You got it? It says, Paul called unto him the disciples and embraced them and departed to go into Macedonia. And when he had gone over those parts and, and had given much exhortation. You notice that the word exhortation means encouragement, preaching. Everywhere he went, he was encouraging people. He came into Greece, and he abode there for three months. And then again, what happens when he abode there for three months? And when the Jews laid wait for him as he was about to sail into Syria, he purposed to return through Macedonia again. And there accompanied him. It looks like in Macedonia, he picked up a number of disciples. And it says, And there accompanied him into Asia, Sopatha of Berea, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, uh, Tim- Timotheus of Asia, Tychicus, and Triophimus, These going before tarry for us at Troas. Now, look at me for a moment. The place that we're going to be talking about this morning is the area called Troas. In that area, in his, one of his other missionary journeys, is when he got that vision of Macedonia. Go to Macedonia. He caught a vision. So Paul was very familiar with this particular place. And you notice that he wanted to go to, he wanted to go to, Mas- he went through Macedonia, and the reason why he went, went through Macedonia, is he was going to Jerusalem, that was his destination. There was a famine in Jerusalem, and he raised money from the Macedonian churches for the famine-stricken people in Jerusalem. And because he had all this money with him, He not only wanted to bring the money from the Macedonian churches, but he also wanted to bring representatives from those churches as well so that they could go to Jerusalem and give the money and also show a sign of unity that all the churches were behind the uh, Jerusalem church. So he had all of these disciples. You can imagine him. I mean, it's just like uh, today you have a lot of people. You think about Apostle Paul. You think a lot of people are celebrities. You ever see those people? that they're untouchable, you can't touch them. That's unbiblical. That's not in the Word of God. I can't think of an Apostle greater than the Apostle Paul, and yet you notice that people accompanied him. He didn't travel alone, but he traveled with a whole lot of people. And you know that when you, you have people traveling with you, you have to be at your very best. How many know that? If you want to get to know a person, just travel with that person. In the choir, when the choir goes to Hawaii, you're really going to get to know those choir members. You begin to live with them, you, you travel with them, you, uh, you, you get to know these people very in a very intimate way. And, and Paul, he was very transparent, very transparent, very humble, very meek, and all these different guys, these disciples that he had reached that were representing all these different churches were traveling with the Apostle Paul and they were on their way to Jerusalem. And he wanted to make it there by Pentecost because he wanted to bring his offering to the stricken people in Jerusalem. And notice what it says over here. These going before tarry for us at Troas. Now notice where it says us over here. And now Luke gets involved. Luke's name is not here, but the author now is with him. It says, uh, these going before us at Troas. And then it says, and now it's using the word, and we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came unto them in Troas in five days, where we abode for seven days. Now, I want you to notice this, that here we find the Apostle Paul, and we're going to park right here in Troas. We've taken you from Ephesus. We went our way to Jerusalem, but we're stopping in Troas. And all of a sudden, Paul gets to Troas, and he says, I'm going to spend seven days here, and I want to minister to the church, and I want to minister to the Christians here at Troas. He actually stayed for seven days. But what we find here is a portrait of worship in the early church. We think about it for a moment and say, how did they worship in the early church? Did they worship like we worship today? You ever stop to think about that? How did these people, early Christians, worship God? Did they follow the same procedure? The, did they have the same order of services that we have today? Well, we have a good portrait of a worship service, and it's very rare to find, r- rare to find a portrait of a, of, of a worship service in the early church, but we have it here. And I want to bring out four facets of their worship that are standing that we find here in this verse. First of all we find we notice that they worshiped on the the first day of the week. You notice that? It says in verse 7, and upon the first day of the week when disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them. So the first thing was that they worshiped on the very first day of the week. That's a contrast to the Judaism. How many know that the Sabbath is not on Sunday? This is is when we find them worshipping the Lord on Sunday. And they were not worshipping the Lord. This church was not worshipping the Lord on the Sabbath day. Now, this didn't happen overnight. You see, it was very difficult for the Jews to, to put away all of their tradition. And it was a transitional period that actually took place within their lives that slowly, even some of them would even go to the temple, even still go to the temple on Saturday, on Sabbath, and then they would go on on the first day of the week on Sunday and they would go to the Christian church and worship God there. So uh, this is something beautiful that we see a transition that took place from the Sabbath day to the very first day of the week. Now this this, uh, label that we have, As uh, Sunday, worshiping the Lord on Sunday. Do you know that even the name Sunday was to a sun god? You know, it doesn't mean a lot, but if we want to give it a a better name, it's better to give it instead of I'm going to go on a Sunday to worship the Lord. What do not we say on the Lord's day? Sunday used to be a, a sun god that they would worship. But when we say the Lord's Day, or when he says the first day of the week, he's saying the Lord's Day. And the reason why we worship on the first day of the week is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He arose and resurrected on the first day of the week. So to commemorate that, the Christians began to worship the Lord on the first day of the week that was on Sunday. And then secondly... We also find as we look at this portrait of worship in the early church that it says that they were gathered we are we, we were gathered together implies that the church service was primarily for a time for believers. You hear that? Believers. It wasn't more it wasn't really evangelistic. When you see them gathering together In the church, the early churches, they gathered together. They gathered together for Bible study. They gathered together for instruction. They gathered together so that they could get nourished, so that they could grow spiritually. And then in turn, all the evangelism was done on the outside. They would come in, they would sit down, get fed, get nourished, get equipped, and then they would go out to turn their city right side up and upside down. So the evangelism didn't necessarily take place within the church, but it took place when they left the four walls. They, when they went out is where evangelism actually took place. And I believe that that's the pattern that God wants, that's the model that God wants for us. Now, naturally, there's going to be people saved when they come in. But the only way the people are going to come in is that you have to go out there and tell them. And when you come on Sunday morning, when you come on, on Sunday or, or the Lord's Day, you come so that you get instructed, so that you can grow spiritually, get energized spiritually, and then you go out. And as you go out, you take that fire with you, and you become a witness in the world, a witness at your job, a witness in wherever you go, witnessing the Lord Jesus Christ and His resurrection. That's the way the early church was. But sad to say, many of us are not following that pattern, we're not following that model. It should be that as you leave here, it's an army that is mobilized to go out and do the work of God. So it was primarily for believers as they gathered together for instruction. For, uh, they would have also, uh, and that's the next point that I want to bring out, they also would have the Lord's Supper. That's the third point. The Lord's Supper was also part of their worship. They gathered together, and they were able to break bread together. Every time, they, we only do it many times once a month, but every chance they had, I believe it was every service that they had on the Lord's Day, they would have a communion service. And they would break bread and also drink the cup of the Lord, again, commemorating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, when we think about the Lord's Supper, it's very important for us to have an understanding of what it's all about. See, what the church has taken it, has made it such a ritual that has, doesn't have any meaning whatsoever. The Lord's Supper, uh, some Christian organizations or religious organizations have taken it that only the clergy could actually give the Lord's Supper or serve the Lord's Supper. But you know, you find that in, you don't find that in the Word of God. In the book of Acts, anybody could give the Lord's Supper. Anywhere they went, they had the Lord's Supper. They were having fellowship in a house with a group of believers, and whoever was the most spiritual, whoever was a little bit uh, notch uh, uh, on top of everybody else spiritually, he would go ahead and serve the Lord's Supper. I think this is something that doesn't have to be restricted just here on, on the Lord's Day or here on Sunday that we have to come together. If we don't have it, you have to wait for it. I think if you have a Bible study, you could go ahead and just get everybody, give the elements out, and just have a Lord's Supper right there in your Bible study. I don't think we, we don't have to be so religious. See, what happens many times, religion distorts the purposes of God. And over here, the, the Lord's Supper was a time of, of fellowshipping together. And fellowshipping there they had something in common, that they were saved and born again. And at the same time, when you think about the Lord's Supper, you're always you're looking behind and then you're looking ahead. And you know what you're looking at? You're looking at the blessed hope. That one day, and it's going to be very soon I feel, we're going to be in the marriage supper of the Lamb. You know the Bible says that? The Bible says it's going to be the rapture of the church and we're going to be taken up and then we're going to be we're going to sit around the table of the Lord in the marriage supper of the Lamb and then there will be Jesus there and he'll be the one that will be serving us. So these disciples, they felt that it was eminent, that the return of Jesus Christ was eminent. He was going to come at any moment, any day. Nowadays, we, we, we even forgot about that Jesus Christ is coming back. But these disciples, especially going through persecution and going through trials, they said, Come, Lord Jesus. And when they gathered together in a communion service, it had great meaning. They said there's a oneness, there was, there was a oneness among them, And they were commemorating the death and burial and resurrection of their Savior. And then also commemorating that the Savior was going to be coming back again. And it was going to be their coming king. And that they were going to be having a feast. And it says it could very well, every time they had it, it could very well be tomorrow. That we could be having that feast in the marriage supper of the Lamb. So the Lord's Supper was also part of their worship as they gathered together for bread. Breaking of bread and, and drinking of the cup. And then, number four, we also have that the early church, they had Bible teaching and Bible preaching. You notice what it says in, in, in verse 8 to 12? It says over here, Paul began to talk, he began to preach. In verse 8, it says, and in, in, uh, in verse 7, and upon the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them ready to depart on the morrow and continue his speech until midnight. You hear that? Now, listen to me, folk. I'm telling you about the early church. Some of you people, when you hit 12 o'clock, you start looking at at your watch. Over here, Paul began to preach, and he went on. I think he got a little carried away, probably. Probably. But he went on preaching till midnight. Imagine ministering till midnight. He kept on ministering and ministering and ministering and talking and talking and talking and preaching and preaching and preaching. And then it talks to us about a man by the name of of Eutychus. It says in verse 8, And there were many lights in the upper chamber where they were gathered together. Now that may be telling us something. That may, have an eff- that may have had an effect on Eutychus, maybe. We'll bring that out maybe later. If, uh, you know, they used to have those lamps. I mean, you know, when the, you know, the smell of the lamps comes, sometimes you have a tendency to get a little dizzy or something like that, you know? Well, there were many lights in the upper chamber. They didn't have lights like we have today. And they were gathered together. And they are sat in the window. Don't ever sit by a window. There sat in a window a certain young man named Eutychus, Eutychus being fallen into, not sleep, but a deep sleep. And then it, notice what it says over here. And as Paul was what? Say that word. As Paul was what? That even before speaking, it says long. As Paul was... Long, my version says long preaching. That says a number of hours. Long preaching. It says he sunk down with sleep. And that's why I tell you, you shouldn't, there's a danger of sleeping in church because look what happened. And he fell down from the third floor. Not only did he fall down from the third floor, but he, fall, he fell down and the Bible tells us that he died. It says he was taken dead. He fell down from the third floor and he was taken up dead. Now, I'll tell you, this poor Eutychus, I say poor, I tell you why. Because, I mean, he, he made a mistake in falling asleep in church, right? Not only did he make, make the bad mistake of falling asleep in church, but not only does he nod out listening, he's, 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 he nods out, first of all, listening to the great apostle. Mind you, now it wasn't Pastor Charlie preaching, it wasn't Pastor Sonny, but it was the apostle Paul. The great apostle, even they slept on him. And then, not only that, but then he tips over and falls out the third story window. Right? And what's most embarrassing of it all is that throughout the ages, we find that through this, Luke records this event. And so that every generation will read it throughout the ages. Fell asleep. Now let's think about it for a moment. Why do people sleep in church? Uh, I started thinking about that. Well, why in, why in the world, why do people sleep in church? And I started trying to find out, you know, reasons. But I, I started thinking first about all the excuses that I get. You'd be surprised what I'm able to see over here. You see, you can't see what I see. And I, I, I have a, I pan my vision like that, and I could spot everything. I mean, I could see all the way back there. Back there too, you know. Some of you think I don't see it, but preachers see you. You may you, you may not be obvious to the person behind you or the person in front of you, but over here we have a good bird's eye view. And I've gone and I've asked some people that have slept in church. I've done some research. And I've asked them, well, why do you sleep and, you know, how come you, you sleep, you know? And look at the excuses I've gotten throughout the years. And I've had a lot of experience because throughout the years of ministry, I've seen a lot of people sleep in church. And these are some of the excuses that I get. You know, they're not original, but these are some of the excuses that I get. No, excuse number one. I, 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 really, I'm just resting my eyes. I, 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 get, I, I get tired of looking in one direction, you know. So I really wasn't sleeping. It's just that when I look into one direction, I just keep on looking at one direction. I just get tired, so I just rest my eyes. Excuse number two. Uh, Really, you think I was asleep, but I, I was really praying for you and also praying for the church. I wasn't really asleep, but I was meditating. Excuse number three. The reason why I I I close my eyes and it looks like I'm sleeping is because I could think better with my eyes closed. (laughs) Number four, and this is a this is a dilly of an excuse. Some have even said the reason why I, I close my eyes is because what I'm really doing, I'm really not asleep. People think I'm asleep, but I'm really not asleep, but I am picturing what you are saying and to picture what you are saying so it has greater meaning in my life i close my eyes and i picture everything you're saying yeah huh come on well why do people fall asleep in church let me give you some possibly reasons why okay I want to give you why, five reasons why I think people fall asleep in church. First of all, the reason why people fall asleep in church is because of tradition. Tradition. Church is a place to sleep. You ever see, uh, you learned that from when you're small. Now those of you that haven't... Those of you that have been saved, you've been saved all your life, or, or, you, or you, you were brought to church. You were, grew up in church. Think about it now. How you were programmed to sleep. In, in those days, when I used to go to church as a little child, they didn't have none of this children's church. Everybody came together. And they brought their kids in, and the kids and the parents, what did they do? They get their kids and lay them down, you know, lay down over here. And be quiet and cocotazo. Mm, mm. And then a meeting goes on and on and on, you know, and you, every time you move it, pow, you know. So the best thing to be safe is to lay low and just go to sleep. In fact, I have a picture of uh, one of uh, the beginning of, uh, one, of our serv- uh, which, one of our services that we, used to, that we had at the, uh, at, at the Gless Street, I believe it was. And I have a picture of, of, of Timothy with a glass of St. Louis Street. And I have a picture of Timothy. I have a picture of Julie. And she's over there praising the Lord. And Timothy's over there. <laughs> Sound asleep. So those of you that grew up in church, there are many of you that haven't grown up in church, but those of you that grew up in church, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, it's something that it goes back as a, it's a tradition that you come to church and you sleep. And some people grow up and they're still sleeping in church because they're following tradition. Number two, the second reason why is also sometimes it's a legitimate reason and it's because of physical factors and we have to give them that benefit physical factors and some people have problems physically some people may even be on medication so they come and if it's a long-winded preacher I don't care how good he is those people cannot stay and they, they cannot keep themselves awake and they have a tendency to begin to you know, go out you see then number three this is another reason and some of you many of you are guilty of this reason the reason why is because of Saturday night. That's why you fall asleep. <laughs> Saturday night partying. You know, you've got to remember that if you're going to come to church on, uh, on Sunday and it's Saturday, you shouldn't stay up late. Because if you stay up late, then the next day you're going to be tired. And some of you do that every Saturday. You stay up late and you're running here and running there and eating here and eating there and partying here and partying there. Come on now. Some people are saying, ouch. And what happens? You come to church on Sunday and as soon as you sit down, Well, naturally, because you're exhausted from hanging out on Saturday night. I think we need to prepare ourselves. Think about it, that you're going to come on the Lord's Day, is Saturday, begin to prepare yourself, go to bed early so that you can get up early on Sunday morning and you can come prepared on Sunday morning to give God the very, very best. How many can say amen to that? So one of the reasons is that Saturday night fiesta. Number four, this is another reason, indifference. Some people are just plain indifferent. You know what they're, they're, they're indifferent towards uh, the preacher? Could be the preacher. How I many you know when you don't like a preacher, you just turn them off, right? As soon as you see, you, 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 I noticed you know, when somebody doesn't like you, he'll just go like that, look at you, and. I had one guy here in the church. He's not here anymore. I don't know if I should thank God for that, but... I had one guy, he not only didn't like me, he didn't like any of the ministerial staff. Because I was checking him out. Because I figured, every time I go up to preach, you know what this guy would do? And especially when he was really uptight, he would sit up towards the front. Not in the back, mind you. Some, some sleepers like to go in the back. They like to be cool about it. Not this guy. He, he would go right up to the front. And you know what he would do? He would just go like that and lay right back, you know, like this here, and stretch himself out and so that I could see him. Indifferent with all of us. I don't think he liked any one of us. But the guy would come to church and all of a sudden he wasn't, I mean, he would fall asleep. Indifference towards the Word of God. And many times towards the preacher, towards the instrument that God uses, and also towards God and the Word of God. And let me tell you, sometimes people fall asleep because they lack maturity. They're not disciplined in, in hearing and in, 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 in being disciplined enough to receive the Word of God. So indifference. And then number five, and I can't leave this one out. This way you're going to have fun on this one. And a preacher hates to say it, but I'm going to say it anyhow. It's not only the tradition, the physical factors, Saturday night parting and difference, but also people fall asleep because of boring preachers. It's all right, you can say amen. I've heard people say, I've even heard people say when I, they hiss, Somebody, a visitor's going to come and preach, and all of a sudden I heard somebody just came out of their mouth that said, Well, I better bring my pillow. (laughs) That's what you call laity talk, you know, your laity talk. (laughs) Talking among yourself. Who's preaching today? Who's preaching? Oh, I want to stay home because I'm not going to go out. Oh, I better bring my pillow with me that so and so is preaching because it's going to be a boring time, you know. But sad to say, sometimes it is because of a boring preacher. And I think as preachers, we have a responsibility to try to keep your attention. Especially if you take the time to come out and listen to us, then uh, we should also be prepared so that we will keep your attention or try to keep your attention as much as we can. And this is not only for the preachers, but this is also for everybody that is ministering within the church. Whether you're ministering in a home Bible study, whatever you're doing, if you're ministering to people, then don't be boring. One of the principles that I follow is I say, if, if I get bored coming to church, then I can imagine everybody else get bored coming to church. So we try to make it that we don't have a boring service. That we don't always succeed, but we do the very best that we can. So it's also boring pre- preachers as well. And Paul Eutychus, uh, 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 what happened to him is that he went ahead and he, he fell asleep. You know, He really, he really, really fell asleep. Now... Different people, you know what they do? I've seen them when they fall asleep. They they act funny when they fall asleep. You know, Eutychus fell asleep, right? Now, I've seen people, they they nod out, they nod out, and and some people, what they actually do, I've seen couples actually nod out in unison. (laughs) I've seen other people actually, you know, just go on, like. I've seen other people, you tell them everybody to, to stand up, and everybody stands up, and that person's still out there like that. And then all of a sudden, you tell them to sit down, and the person jumps up all of a sudden. You see a lot of these things. You see some weird things in church. But this man, he went ahead and he fell asleep. And not only did he fall asleep, but he also got killed. He fell from a third story and he fell to his death. Now listen what, what Paul did. Then all of a sudden, it says over here that the Apostle Paul and Paul, verse 10, Paul went down and it says he fell on him. That's pretty heavy, isn't it? Paul went down and embracing him said, Trouble not yourself for his life is in him. And when he was there for was come up again and had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, and then Paul kept on talking till daybreak, so he departed and they brought the young man alive and there was not little comfort. Now I want you to get the picture of what actually happened. This man falls asleep. This young person, I believe he's a young person, fell all the way down. Paul went down, says, okay, don't, don't worry about it, folks. I'll go down there. He went down, the guy was dead. You can imagine the people screaming and yelling. The whole neighborhood w- was probably hearing the commotion that was taking place because in the, in the Middle East, those people scream and yell. You ever see them when somebody dies, they just screaming and carrying on? So you can imagine the noise. And, and Paul came down and tried to calm everybody, and then he comes down and he just embraces him, and he brings them back to life. Brings them back to life. And then he brings them back upstairs. When well, he brought them back upstairs, then they went ahead and they had communion service. They had communion service. He broke it up. He says, I'm not going to preach right now. We'll have communion service. And they had the communion service, and they ate, and they had communion. And after they had communion, he says, okay, folks, let's keep on going now. And from 12 o'clock midnight, he went and he preached all the way to morning. Have you ever been in a meeting like that? I mean, even Augie don't top that. And I've heard of Pastor Ollie oh, going three hours. <laughs> but could you imagine till 12 o'clock midnight, and then after 12 o'clock midnight, some guy falls, a, falls asleep and dies, and he gets up and he brings him back to life. Get back up there now. Come on, son, get back up there. He goes back up again. The people embrace him. They're happy. Now let's have a, a good uh, meal over here, and let's have the communion. And they had communion. They praised the Lord. Okay, folks, sit down again. I have much to say. And he started ministering again till the morning hours. My Lord. Do you think you could survive? you think you could survive in the early church? That's why these people were experiencing miracles. Because they were totally dedicated, totally committed, and totally given unto uh, unto God. Now, there are people, some of you, that maybe you don't go to sleep physically. Hear me now. There are some of you here this morning that maybe you haven't gone to sleep physically. And it's not evident because you're not like that. But you've gone to sleep mentally and spiritually. Every meeting there are people that go to sleep mentally. You know how I could tell? They begin to daydream. Instead of closing their eyes, their eyes are just wide open. And they... It looks like they're looking at you, but they're really not looking at you. They have a space look. They're a thousand miles away somewhere. They've gone to sleep mentally and spiritually. And many times when that begins to happen, that brings death. The very same way it was dangerous for for Eutychus to fall asleep and he, he fell to his death, there are people that are spiritually dead because you are spiritually asleep. So there's that mental and spiritual uh, uh, asleep, being asleep. And then there's the Christians that are asleep as far as their activities for Christ is concerned. Do you know that if you are not involved in the work of God, If you're a spectator this morning and all you do is come to church and go home and you don't do anything during the week and you're not involved in a Bible study and you're not involved in in winning somebody to Christ and you're not involved in being a witness for Jesus and somehow God is not using your life and you're you're not giving yourself over to God to use your life, do you know that you're asleep as far as your activities in Christ is concerned? You are spiritually asleep. And the very same way that it was detrimental for this young man to fall asleep physically, it is detrimental for us to fall asleep spiritually. And what I pray, hear me now, what I pray is that somehow each and every one of you will get an appetite for the Word of God. It is not the jumping that's going to take you to heaven. It is not the goosebumps that is going to bring growth within your life. If you notice in the book of Acts, when it talks about growth, it says it doesn't talk numerically. It doesn't say, now that church in Ephesus, you don't know how many people the church in Ephesus had. Uh, You don't know how many people the church in Philippi had. I mean, it doesn't give you numerical numbers. All it tells you is, and the word of God grew. Over and over, the word of God grew grew and the Word of God grew. And whenever there is a growing process in in a person's life where they're growing in the Word of God, the transforming process is taking place within their life because the Word of God has the ability and the power to change us. And how many know that a whole lot of us need a whole lot of changing? And the only way we're going to change is through the divine Word of God. We pray that this message has encouraged you to grow in your walk with God. To hear more messages, visit www.visionintlstore.com. Thank you for listening. God bless you.